anthropologist studying this cop crowd would be introduced into as rich and mystifying a popular culture as in any South Sea island. Their rhythmic swaying is an elaborate and organized ritual. The 28,000 people on the cop itself begin singing together. They seem to know intuitively when to begin. Throughout the match, they invent new words, usually within the framework of old Liverpool songs, to express adulatory, cruel or bawdy comments about the players or the police. But even then, they begin singing these new words with one immediate huge voice. They seem, mysteriously, to be in touch with one another, with Wacker, the spirit of Scouts. The spirit is good-humoured and generous when they're winning, but not necessarily when they're losing. Hello and welcome to the Dugout on the World Football Index with me, Adam Brandon. On this week's edition, Andrew Lorne joins me to talk about his book, We Lose Every Week, The History of Football Chanting. How are you, Andrew? And maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself. Hello, I'm, I'm very well, thank you for asking. Uh, so I'm Andrew Lorne, I'm a Norwich fan and a St Pauli fan. And I, as you say, I've just recently written a book, which means that I've had to give up uh, doing the Along Come Knowledge podcast and fan campaigning movement, I guess you would call it, for to try and improve the atmosphere at Carrow Road. Yep, indeed. So aside from um, supporting the greatest football team in the world, like myself, <laughs> you've also <laughs> written this. You've also written this book um, about the history of football chanting. Um, football chants can be anthems. Sometimes they can be simple acts of encouragement to cheer on your team. Others are to distract the opposition. Others can be funny. Some can be offensive. Many are ing- are aggressive. We'll be kind of looking over that in the, in this pod. But um, first of all, it, this feels like good timing actually today to talk about this book because with fans back in the stadium this weekend. You know, we heard our anthem at Norwich on the Ball City sung at Carrow Road yesterday and singing and cheering from the supporters certainly seemed to help inspire the win over Sheffield Wednesday on Saturday. It really showed the importance of this subject we are talking about today, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And when when I sort of found out that the book was going to come out during a period where football fans generally aren't allowed to watch games... Initially, I thought that's sort of terrible timing, but actually, I think there's never been a time in recent football history where the effect that fans do have on the game has been so pronounced and kind of so kind of intrinsic to how everyone feels about football and watching football and going to football and how kind of appreciated fans are at the moment. So I live within uh, earshot of Carroll Road. And yesterday I was walking the dog and I heard the game start. I heard the kind of the roar of the teams coming out. And then I heard a very loud come on you yellows, which as anyone who has gone to Norwich matches before will know is pretty much only sung when there's a corner. So even though I was walking the dog half a mile away from the ground, I could tell from what the fans were chanting that Norwich had a corner. I then heard the kind of ooh as it obviously went wide. <laughs> and then 10 seconds later, a great big oh, you're shit. Ah! So I knew that the corner would come at nothing and that they'd had a goal kick. And I knew all of that from the chanting. No, like I didn't yeah. need to listen to the radio or watch it on TV. The fans told me everything 
kind of that I needed to know. So in some ways, I think it's it's the best time that a book can like this can come out because people really miss going to games and miss the effect that fans have on the game. Yeah, so it certainly had that effect on me when when I was reading it. Yeah, I I really felt oh, I just can't wait to get back now into a stadium and and to be witness to you know, a stadium full of mad South American fans chanting and jumping up and down again. <laughs> um, I can't wait for that to happen. I, I suppose the sort of the next nat- um, natural question here is why did you choose this subject as something to write about? Was there a particular incident or moment that sparked the idea? I, th- I think there was one particular moment, yes. Um, but more generally, when I first started going to watch football, uh, my dad used to take me, and he's a steward at Carrow Road. So I used to go with him, and he would be on the turnstile letting people in, and he had to do that until half time. So I would kind of just wander into the ground, and I remember really vividly standing at the bottom of a floodlight pylon in what is now the corner between the river end and the city stand. And I remember leaning on that floodlight and I was sort of half watching the game, but I was much more captivated by the crowd and watching like this deceiving mass of people who were making a lot of noise and swearing, which as a six-year-old kid, to see adults swearing and to see adults making loads of noise and to see adults being kind of boisterous was completely kind of new and captivating to me. So I spent most of the time watching the fans rather than the game. And then I became more and more interested in the game. And then I suppose the, the real spark for me was I went to Portman Road and a Norwich Ipswich derby. And at the time, there was a serial killer uh, who was murdering sex workers in Ipswich. And the Norwich fans were singing, where's your prawns? He's gone. Where's your prawns? He's gone. And I was singing it. I was like the same as everyone else. And it suddenly dawned on me, like, what are we singing? Like, how is this okay? And I looked around and there were kind of your normal sort of lads. But then there were men, there were grandparents, women, children, like the full gamut of society were all standing singing this song. And I looked at the Ipswich fans. And again, you had this full range of society sitting there. And they were looking at the Norwich fans and laughing. And I thought, why, why is this okay? What is it about football? that makes singing this okay because if you were in the street or if you were in a supermarket and you went up to somebody and said what we're singing that wouldn't that definitely wouldn't be okay so why is it okay in in a football ground and at the time I just happened to be looking for a subject to do my dissertation at uni and I was completely stuck and it dawned on me that that might be an interesting thing to look into is what societal kind of societal rules I guess meant that going to football and saying stuff like that was deemed funny rather than offensive so it became my dissertation in doing the research for the dissertation I realized that on the ball city which is Norwich's anthem is the oldest chant that's still sung today which was kind of cool so I thought I'm gonna look into that a little bit more and yeah the kind of the book grew from a kind of general interest in in fans initially and then this particular chant and this particular set of circumstances that made that chant okay grew into a dissertation which ultimately grew into the book yeah i, I think oh, i can't remember what year would that have been that would have been what sort of the the early 2000s yeah i think that around chant? 2005 yeah i felt i think it's possibly i am this is something your book does well is sort of re- reflect you know what was seen as acceptable 
at one period of time in uh, in history, in the history of football chanting, isn't necessarily acceptable now. You know, I can't imagine um, that being sung by so many people these days. No, and I think I, I don't. I, do I, you, I, or or do you think differently? Do you, do you think that that chant would still be seen as acceptable? Quote unquote, because I'm not sure it was it was received um, across the board as acceptable at that time. I can't believe that it would would be now. No, and I think there is an element of that in the same way that I kind of it dawned on me what we were singing, and therefore I stopped singing. I think fans are getting much better at self policing this kind of thing, and I think actually uh, as we're recording this, the backlash at the Millwall fans booing the the Millwall team kneeling for Black yeah. Lives Matter is is a really interesting thing in that yeah. they kind of did it and it did happen, but the backlash and the kind of self-policing and then the, yeah. the mix of Millwall fan views afterwards is very interesting. And you wouldn't have got that 10 years ago, I don't think. Like I can, as, as another example, I can remember being um, in, in Norwich crowds where thousands of people would be singing homophobic chants towards uh, Brighton fans. Yeah. This would be in what the the late nineties, early two thousands, and although I think it's addressed in your book, you know that still does happen. That, but it doesn't happen to the to the same degree as it used to, does it? No, absolutely not. And I I do think that fans generally are, are getting much braver at, at kind of stamping it out. And if there's one benefit of all seater stadiums, I guess it's that you kind of you tend to know the people around you so you feel much more comfortable to say something if someone's singing something near you that you don't kind of agree with because you've kind of built up a relationship whereas on a terrace maybe you're moving around and you're seeing new people all the time and i think just generally in society we're getting much better at saying no this isn't this isn't okay and we should put a stop to this and football chanting is one of those areas where it's a really fine line between something that's funny and something that's offensive because you can have something that's both funny and offensive at the same time. Yeah. And it's a really personal there's a whole, thing. There's a whole chapter in your book about that, isn't there? Yeah. That phenomenon. And I think it's in, it's, in, it's one of those situations where it's so personal. What is funny to me is going to be different to potentially what's funny to you or to someone else. And the same with offence. And it's, it's not something that you can definitively say, yes, that is funny or no, that is offensive. But I think as a society, we're getting better at recognising that this has the potential to be really offensive and it's not funny enough to warrant the level of offence, if you like. Yeah, how how football chants out are now are very different to how football chants were when they first came about in the 19th century. And that is uh, where um, one of the opening chapters of your book sort of starts off this story. And the first football songs emerged in Victorian music halls. And, and, and maybe you could tell our listeners a bit about those early days of, uh, of the football song or the football chants. Yeah, absolutely. So the very first one was actually written by Edward Elgar, who's much more famous as a sort of classical music composer. He wrote a chant for a Wolves player at the time. He was a Wolves fan and he was trying to impress his kind of girlfriend at the time who was taking him to Wolves matches. So he wrote a chant about a particularly famous Wolves player who'd scored a goal against Stoke the day before. And then what happened was with On The Ball City, which is the oldest that's still sung to this day, is that at the time, Norwich had a series of different football clubs and sporting clubs. 
And at the end of every year, they would come together for kind of a celebration dinner, a bit like Sports Personality of the Year, I guess, but for clubs in the city. And a guy who went on to become a director of Norwich City, a guy called uh, Albert Smith, wrote Honourable City as a kind of celebratory song to celebrate all of the city's football clubs coming together. And then when Norwich City were formed, what happened was all of those individual clubs kind of merged into one club. And as part of the kind of process of making them feel like one club, they took this song that had been written for this dinner three or four years before and made it kind of their own. So Honourable City as a charm is older than Norwich City as a club. And they kind of took it as a kind of symbol as now we're one city and one football club. And then what you had was other clubs, as they kind of formed, would take on anthems that were very parochial and very uh, very context-specific about their area. So Newcastle have Bladen Races, which is about a horse race, I think it is, in the northeast. Uh, Pompey and Portsmouth have Play Up Pompey. And they had these kind of really parochial songs that were just about a place and they weren't context specific in terms of what was going on in the match or what was going on in the league or anything like that it was very much about the place and then how that changed was in the 1960s when the cop at Liverpool started to become kind of the singing end if you like at the time Liverpool's music scene was thriving and Liverpool was becoming famous around the world for things like Cilla Black and the Beatles and the cop would sing Scylla Black songs and the Beatles songs verbatim. They wouldn't change the words like chants do now. They'd just sing the pop song because the pop song was famous and they were kind of proud of it as a city, that their city had produced this pop song. And then slowly over time, that evolved to changing the words. And that was kind of the big jump from Victorian Music Hall played to a piano containing words that you wouldn't hear today, like scrimmage, through to kind of what you get now where... Sloop John B has got more words than I've had hot dinners. Indeed, and, and On the Ball City remains, what, the oldest chance still in use to, yeah. to this day, right? Yeah, by absolutely. any football club, so. It's just carried on, basically, and the fans still sing it to this day. There's, they tend to sing the chorus rather than the entire thing, because it's like a four-minute proper song. But and, with, and with one word added. Yes, exactly. The word it. It. <laughs> right, at the we see in the book and and one of the many things I liked about your book was how it was much more than just a book about football chanting and as I mentioned earlier it sort of covers social history pretty well too especially in Britain where where we see how the game sort of how the chants evolved um, over time and you mentioned it there about the influence of pop cult culture certainly in the 60s in in Liverpool being being one of the examples 
But then by the end of the 70s, many of the songs have then become aggressive and that, and that kind of reflects the rise in, in hooliganism and, and maybe some of the things going on kind of off the field as well at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So at that period of time in Britain, as you say, it wasn't a particularly fun time to be particularly a young man in a northern working class kind of town because the way the economy was going, the decisions of, in particular, Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government were disenfranchising a lot of the people who are who make up a kind of traditional football-going audience. And that was reflected in, in kind of the violence on the terraces. And then the violence on the terraces was reflected in the chanting of the day. So one breeds the other. Like foot, You can't separate football and football crowds from society. If you are a football fan, that's not all you are. You are also employed or unemployed or uh, also potentially a cricket fan or a motorist or you're a hundred other things you're a husband or a wife or you know you're a son and a daughter you're all of these other things and what is going on in your life directly impacts how you then behave in all areas of your life and football is just one area but it's one area in which the nature of the crowd allows you to kind of be anonymous so you're potentially a little bit braver in what you're expressing about yourself. Yeah, I was, I was, I was thinking of bringing this up earlier. Actually, um, the Liverpool-based academic Rogan Taylor, um, he once said that football is like strong beer. Some people just can't take it. And you know that when you were discussing earlier about you know, your inspiration for this book and you know quite an unpleasant chant that Norwich fans were singing, um, and then you suddenly sort of catch yourself. In, in that moment, um, you know, Taylor's, Taylor's point there was basically, you know, when a mass of people are, are basically overdoing something at the same time, that kind of collective intoxication is, is more like a poisoning of the mind. Yeah. And so the hysteria of, of that moment sort of just creates a, a strange atmosphere. I remember Tim Vickery discussing... Um, this uh, the South American football journalist in, in, in an article he wrote a few years ago uh, called The Lager of Life, where where he brings up Rogan Taylor and and this example. So um, that's that's quite a good article to to check out as well. Kind of on the subject of how crowds can just take over, um, you know, people's you know good normal good natured good thinking people can be just completely sort of. Um, overtaken by the phenomenon of a of a football crowd and and football chanting absolutely i think a, a nice um description i heard of chanting which i included in the book and is really topical at the moment is it's a bit like a virus in that it starts from one person and as a and yeah. physically it radiates out with one person singing then two people singing then five people singing but also it's like a virus in terms of you get swept up in it so you get involved in it even if you wouldn't necessarily want to get involved in it just by the nature of being there and being part of it and and what kind of research did you undertake for this for this book i think that's quite this is quite a good time to sort of ask you that question now yeah so a lot of the kind of the sort of the sociological and the psychological stuff um has been covered fairly well there's a lot of books on kind of football fandom and they in particular focus a lot on hooliganism and that kind of nature of the crowd and being swept along and stuff so there was a lot of kind of academic research that I could do in that area. In terms of the kind of the evolution of chanting, 
and kind of the story, if you like, of how it's changed and how it's developed. There isn't really anything that's been done like that before. So that there wasn't really one resource that I could go to and say, well, I can keep going back to that. So it was a lot of contemporary reports from newspapers and stories from the time that just mention maybe one or two chants in the context of the game as a whole. So there's a chant in there, for example, about um, John Joe Shelby, who has alopecia, and he was warming up for uh, Liverpool in front of some West Ham fans, and the West Ham fans sang, uh, oh, Harry Potter, he's coming for you, because the idea being that John Joe Shelby looks a bit like Lord Voldemort. Now, that isn't mentioned in a discussion on the offensiveness or otherwise of football chanting. (laughs) It's mentioned just as a funny little aside, as a description of how boring the game was that the West Ham fans started to chant about Liverpool subs rather than watching the game. But is a really nice, taken out of that sort of context of that match report, is a really nice piece in terms of, is that funny? Is that offensive? And how that tells the story of where kind of the line gets drawn and where the shift goes from racism and homophobia to to something slightly more gentle but potentially still offensive. So there was a lot of reading newspapers and cutting out uh, articles and saving them up. And my dad was really good, actually. He loves to buy a newspaper, cut out a number of articles and then staple them to a private eye and send them to me in the post. So I've got reams and reams of newspaper cutting. Nice. A great assistant to have then when writing a book. Absolutely. So we've touched on kind of the Victorian music halls, uh, the karaoke on the cup and the rise of hooliganism. These are all titles um, of the chapters of your book we've also discussed how chance can be offensive but the title of this book we lose every week how did that come about so initially i was going to call the book from piano to wheelbarrow because that is kind of the narrative arc of the book if you like it started at a piano and it goes on to a kind of completely irreverent uh, not to county chant about having a wheelbarrow and the wheel fell off. But the publisher correctly pointed out that you would only get that if you'd read the book first and a book title should really tell you what's in the book rather than sum up the book after you've read it. So we then changed it to who are you? Who are we? Because I kind of felt like what we chant at football is a reflection of who we are as people. So kind of aping the popular who are you, who are you chant and and turning it back on itself. And then two months before the book was due to come out, uh, a guy called Kevin Day, who presents Match of the Day 2 in the UK and is a stand-up comedian, he published a book called Who Are You? that was about something entirely different, (laughs) but meant that we then had to change the title at the last minute. So I had to think about uh, what my favourite chants were and whether or not any of those would work. And one of my personal favourite chants is, we lose every week, you're nothing special, we lose every week because I think it says a lot about the kind of the football fan experience of we turn up every week, we don't expect to win, especially fans of clubs like Norwich, you turn up, you don't expect to win every week. If you do win, it's a bonus. Um, And you still go, you still go from Norwich to Burnley or Norwich to Plymouth, even though kind of you expect to lose. And increasingly, certainly pre-COVID, the experience of being a football fan, particularly in, in England, was increasingly difficult. Like, fixtures were moved for broadcasters prices were going up football fans were generally treated as an inconvenience rather than something that was kind of integral to the game so I felt that as a chant it was a really nice example of the the nice things about football chanting and I think it also spoke about the experience of being a football fan more generally at the moment so it just seemed to to fit quite nicely and 
now, I think it's actually much, much better than the two titles that went before it. So I'm I'm thankful to Kevin Day for for throwing a spanner in the works at the last minute. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, I think it's a pretty um, eye catching title for a book. Really, a lot of your book is 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 based of sort of understandably about you know British um, football culture and and its chanting, but you you do also explore the international scene and other cultures too. Did you find many differences in how football chants developed in in different cultures and and countries? Yeah, and I think they're they're kind of reflective of the society in which they came from. So initially, when I started to research the book, I kind of naively assumed that football chanting all around the world would would kind of be the same, and it it wouldn't matter whether or not you're in Buenos Aires or London, the chanting would kind of be the same. And what I found was it's it's really different. So I obviously mentioned at the start that I also follow St. Pauli, who are a second division German side. And the first time I went and watched them live, I was really surprised at how different the kind of the types of noise were in the stadium. Corners weren't cheered anywhere near as loudly. Decisions weren't appealed anywhere near as loudly. And the chanting was much less contextual to what was going on in the game. It was much more of a kind of solid backing of the team for 90 minutes rather than something that was positive if things on the pitch were positive, but super negative if things on the pitch weren't so positive. So that was really interesting. And then uh, when I did some research, so South America is kind of a hotbed, if you like, of ultra culture, particularly at the moment um, in terms of the European kind of football, as I said, about the football fan experience being increasingly under threat. More and more people are looking to the South American experience and kind of taking things that work really nicely there. So more kind of TIFO-y stuff, more musical instruments, and much more colour. And I think that's sort of coming over from South America with the rise of YouTube, essentially, which allows people mm. in, in Europe to see what's going on and to see that something better is kind of out there. And the kind of initial rise of ultra groups, if you like, came from Brazil and the 1950 World Cup. And there was this kind of sense that people in Britain and in Europe were seeing this sort of football played in Brazil, but they're also noticing the noise and the, the carnivalesqueness of the crowds. And that was a kind of big driving force for chanting to take that kind of next step with Silla Black and stuff in the UK. So it is very different wherever you go, and it's very reflective of kind of the society that it comes out of. I talk a bit about uh, Morocco in the book and Raja Casablanca. And they've got a lot of chants that are very anti-government because of the political situation in the country and the kind of the makeup of the crowd, much as it was in Britain under Thatcher. The makeup of the people who are in the crowd are disenfranchised with the government. And a lot of the chanting is based on that and not on the football at all. So I think a football crowd is always going to be reflective of the society that it comes out of. And you can tell a lot about that society by looking at the crowd and and listening to them. Some some of the chants which which come out of Morocco are are some of my favourites. Um, there's there's another team there um, called it- Itihad Tangier, I think is the name of the team, and, and they had this fantastic chant which translates as "This is a land of humiliation," and it highlights kind of government corruption. Um, where they were able to afford to pay Shakira millions of uh, dollars to take part in some concert 
in in Morocco whilst um, whilst there wasn't any money to feed starving starving people in in the in the country was was basically the the one of the main themes of, of this chant which really does get stuck in your head that is the big problem with researching this book was so many of these chants are really catchy and they just sit in your head for days on end on loop other things I found interesting in your book was some chants don't necessarily have the history you would expect them to have. Um, one example of this would be, I would say, well, something which isn't technically a chant, really, you know, or unless you, I can't remember how you word it in the book, but it's like a non-vocal chant, is it? Yeah. The Icelandic thunderclap. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> um, that, 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 that didn't actually start in Iceland, you're telling me in this book. No, the, the story goes that it didn't start in Iceland. It was part of uh, the film, which no, whose name I now completely forget, uh, but I mentioned it in the book. But there's a scene in the book where two armies, uh, sorry, there's a scene in the movie where two armies come together. And I think it's Russell Crowe is leading one of the armies. And the the bigger three hundred. That's it, three hundred. So Russell Crowe is leading one of the armies, and he approaches. He comes across another army, and uh, the general of that army says something along the lines of, "You're not going to win any wars with that tiny little band of men." And Russell Crowe turns to the other general, and turns to all of his soldiers, and he asks them individually what they do for a living. And they come back with things like, "I'm a potter. I'm a blacksmith. I'm a farmer, etc." And then he turns to his men and say. And in each individual says, well, what do you do for a living? And each of them just pounds their shield and says, Hoo! and it kind of builds this sense of unity and the suggestion that, yes, you've got a huge army, but you're made up of individuals. I've got a small army, but we're all one unit. And they make this Hoo! 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 sound that builds into this crescendo. And that was then taken uh, into Scottish football completely randomly. So it wasn't Iceland at all. And then I think it was Hibbs off the top of my head that played an Icelandic team whose name I now completely forget, but were also famous for the goal celebration where they pretend to be fishing and they catch the player and all hold him up and he sort of squirms. Uh, Starnak, something like that. I'm not going to pronounce it because my Icelandic is awful. They played them in the Europa League and they, the Icelandic team heard them doing it and then took it home. And then it kind of swept around Iceland and the Icelandic national team took it. And then they went to Euro 2016 and it kind of became famous around the world again as the Icelandic thunderclap. But it emerged from Scotland and particularly the movie 300, which is a really roundabout way of kind of 
going global, but it is a thing that chants do. Like you hear a good chant, you hear a catchy tune, and then you take it and adopt it for yourself. Like Liverpool did with Ale Ale Ale, which came from Napoli, and then they got it from uh, La Aquila, which is a span uh, an Italian lower division side. Like this thing with chanting is kind of like a, a musical magpie, if you like. You steal tunes from other songs that you like and then adapt them for your purposes yeah i think i think uh, i think i like a lot of football chanting and sort of football traditions have been brought back from european trips haven't they by by british fans over the years yeah and i think Um, that's increasing with with youtube and stuff and it also is a nice thing about kind of the history of chanting is that there's normally two or three different stories of where this chant emerged from and it's they're often hypocritical. Yeah. There's the Stoke one, Delilah, which is said to have come from some Stoke fans in a pub singing a load of swear word filled songs. And then the police going into the pub and saying, can you not swear? We don't mind you singing, but can you please not swear? And one Stoke fan stood up on a table and just started to sing Tom Jones's Delilah. And immediately kind of the pub started singing it and then they took it onto the terrace and it just became Stoke's anthem all just because a, a copper went into a pub and said, can you not swear, please? Yeah, and and you get some other chants which were like written at a very specific time in that, in that club's history and, and, have, and, have, and still hold today as that main anthem. I guess one of these examples would be Leeds with Marching On Together, that came about in the 70s, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it was recorded for, I think it was um, as a B-side for an FA Cup single when football clubs still released a single to celebrate reaching the FA Cup final. It was released as a B-side and they had some fans on the album, um, on the recorded version singing it. And it just, again, it just became adopted. And now it's a staple of every single Leeds home Another personal favourite chant of mine would be Sunshine on Leaf, which was actually written by a band, the Proclaimers, as like an ode to the area of Edinburgh they're from, which is also the area where Hibernian are based. Yeah, and and that's a really nice example, I think, of a, a chant that is very kind of specific to that local area and it just being adopted in the same way that Liverpool fans did with Silla Black. They they take this kind of celebration of their area and then they amplify it by the fact that they've got 5,000 voices and they're on, for example, the Scottish Cup final uh, recording, which has gone viral. They're kind of on national TV, there's 5,000 voices, and they get to sing this song that everyone knows that celebrates their little area of the world. And I think that's a really a beautiful thing about football chanting, that kind of your normal press coverage of what football chanting is. And if you say to someone in the street, about football fans chanting, that isn't kind of the perception. The perception isn't one of celebration and pride in a local area. It's much more seen as something that's aggressive and, and unsavoury, but I don't think that is the full story. And was there like a particular chant that you came across that you really liked that you didn't know about before? 
So there's a couple from sort of around the world. Um, again, to go back to Morocco, uh, there's a really nice one there called uh, La Grande Storia, which is just really tuneful and really catchy. And one of the things I like about that is it's sung in Spanish. And then in the USA, a lot of teams have taken it and they've made the words half English, half Spanish. And it flits between the two, even between, even in a single sentence. It'll start off English then have a couple of Spanish words and then go back to English. And I like that kind of sense of, again, borrowing something from somewhere else, adapting it and making it your own, but keeping that kind of original flavour and that kind of inclusivity and that celebration of an yeah. area. I, I certainly I certainly know I've, I've watched games sort of in Europe or in Asia or in North America over the years where suddenly you'll hear like a very English chant as well. You sort of tune in to one particular English word and then you realise that they're singing an English chant or there's an English sentence yeah. within the middle of uh, an otherwise completely indecipherable yeah. chant. Uh, and, what, and what was the other one? Oh, I really like Dale Boca. Actually, yeah. that's, a, that's a really nice one. So, I, yeah, Dale Boca I really like and Dale Cavese, the kind of the Italian equivalent. And again, the story behind that is really nice in that Boca Juniors were singing uh, Dele Boca. They put some words to it, which was literally just Dele Boca. And then a, an Italian fan from a small Italian club called Cavese went to Buenos Aires on, I think it was on a family holiday, and he got chatting to some Boca fans in a bar who were singing this song, and he loved it because it was so catchy. And he bought a CD of Boca fan chants and took it back with him to Italy and played it in his kind of local bar with his ultras. And then they took it onto the terraces at Cavese. And that got filmed. And then, again, went around the world because someone put it on YouTube. It's a really, really catchy song. And it was really easily adapted. And now loads of clubs in all countries have this song that started off at Boca, went to the Italian lower divisions, and then spread around the world. <laughs> Certainly between me and my friends here, that is like considered um, like one of the dullest songs <laughs> in South America. It's just because just because of what you're saying, really, it's it's just the fact that almost every team has like a version of it. Yeah. Like ah, uh, once you hear it start up, it's like ah, oh, god, this is going to go on for minutes. Yeah, and that's definitely a problem. I think is that it's it's very easy to adapt someone else's chart and steal someone else's chart. It's much more difficult to come up with with something new. And I do think that one of the one of the kind of the future problems with football chanting might be that kind of uh, merging of everything into one thing. So you don't get any difference anymore. Everyone's singing the same chants because the the difficulty of coming up with something new is massively outweighed by the ease of just going on YouTube and finding a catchy tune and humming along in the same way so I do think it's important that we kind of we try and protect the kind of the regional differences and the the uniqueness to each club and I think some clubs do that particularly well so and I know I mentioned earlier that Liverpool stole LA 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 but they do have a real kind of fan culture that come up with individual chants for players that are just Liverpool I know at Norwich our own particular fan group try and do the same thing and if we hear a chant that someone else is singing, we try not to use that tune for something that we're going to create. Manchester United uh, have a really good history of not stealing other people's chants and trying to come up with their own. And I think it's important that we don't always just 
borrow from other clubs and adapt it to ourselves. I think it's a nice thing that that happens, but I really think it's important that it doesn't just become one chant like Dale Kavese or Dale Boca that just everyone has, and then it's not it's not unique anymore. I think uh, I think possibly my my favourite Norwich chant over the years was actually Moroccan related as well, and that and that was and that was towards our centre midfielder in the mid two thousands, Yusuf Safari, who had the chant Moroccan all over the world. That was a uh, that was certainly a, a beauty of its time. Yeah, also. absolutely. I think and that's a really I think a really good example again of just taking a, a moment in time and you can. If you if you now hum along to that Moroccan all over the world as a Norwich fan, you immediately go back to that period of time. You probably think of his goal against Newcastle, and those yeah. sort of those sort of moments in time are captured by those unique chants. So I think it's really important that they are protected a little bit. I, re- I remember this whole fan I worked with. Um, he, he he went to a whole Norwich game um, around that time. It must have been, and and, and we were singing that song, and he came into work. And and said, oh, I couldn't believe how good that song was that you were singing. <laughs> <laughs> he said it was in his head all the way home from from the game. Excellent. So, uh... And that is a, another nice thing about chanting, actually, is that it's one of those things that unites football fans. So every single football fan that you speak to will have a story about a particular chant that they heard or that they loved or that they love to sing. But everyone's got their own thing about football chanting which I think is really nice. It's a really kind of universal fan experience because not every football fan knows what it's like to win the league or win the World Cup or get relegated or survive on the final day because they're kind of unique to different clubs. But every everybody's got an experience of a charm or being in a crowd or something like that that kind of brings us all together. Indeed, indeed. Um, maybe we just sign off here by by you telling the listeners exactly you know where where they can buy your book and um i think it'll make quite a good christmas present for many people thank you very much uh yeah so it's available in all the normal places that you would get your books so it's available on amazon and waterstones but the quickest way to get it is from the publisher which is ockley books which is o-c-k-l-e-y and the reason that it's quickest to get it from Ockley is if you order it from Amazon, then Ockley have to send it to Amazon to send it to you. Whereas if you order it directly from Ockley, they can send it directly to you. So it's we lose every week the history of football chanting. And, and I agree with you, it'd make an excellent Christmas present. Indeed, I, I highly recommend it. And, and where can people find you on Twitter? So I'm on Twitter as at Andrew underscore lawn, as in garden or lawnmower. Okay. And... Yeah, you can find me at Adam Brandon 84 And all what's left to say is a huge thanks to Andrew for joining me to discuss his most excellent book, The History of Football Chanting, We Lose Every Week. And also a huge thanks to our listeners, and it's goodbye. I can't quite believe we've seen Hibs players lift the Scottish Cup. And we're going to go quiet here, Connor, because sunshine on leaf is about to be belted out. Let's just listen to this.
Wow. That's, Just wow. That's, that's tear to the eyes. Unbelievable stuff. stuff.